There's only one thing that gave me a sleepless night. There's only one thing that troubled me all throughout the morning, and that is this. Within a hundred years, a great majority of people in this building will possibly be in hell. I think it's an incontrovertible fact that the typical evangelical church of this generation has become weak and womanly. But I, I despise the picture that's painted in our culture of this sissified, needy Jesus. God is not neutral nor apathetic towards the wisdom of the world. God said, I will literally destroy it. Have we finally reached a place in the evangelical churches, in the SBC, in the PCA, in the conservative evan evangelical churches where homosexuality is finally being accepted? Is that where we're at? What is happening to our leaders? What is happening to our seminaries? What is happening to our pastors, our elders, our churches? What is going on? Have we moved within this short period of time over the last 10 years from a total rejection of any hint or idea of homosexuality in the church to now all of a sudden not only embracing homosexuality, but affirming it, weaving it into our church family, celebrating it? What is going on, folks? Welcome to episode 17 of the Reformed Rant. Today is March 28th, and we are going to talk about the gay audit for Christian churches. Buckle up. fiddle at Johnny's feet, and it burned inside his mind the way he suffered that defeat. In the darkest pits of hell, the devil hatched an evil plan to tempt the fiddle player, for he's just a mortal man. The sin of pride, the devil cried, is what will do you in. I thought we had this settled. I'm the best it's ever been. Johnny, did you ever know the time keeps marching on? The coldest hour is the one comes just before the dawn. The devil's back in Georgia. Will you stand up to the test? Or will you let the devil be the best? Have you ever wondered if your church is perceived rightly by homosexuals? Well, Sam Albury and his co cohorts think you ought to be concerned with how homosexuals or how homosexual friendly your church is. And not only that, they've actually given us a, an absolutely wonderful tool, according to them, to help us measure our churches and do an assessment to determine how friendly toward homosexuals our church is or is not. I'm calling this instrument the gay audit, and it is the subject of this episode. Before we jump in, I want to read Revelation 2.20 for you and say that this text is extremely applicable to the movements that we see going on in Christianity today, especially the same-sex attraction 
movement, the homosexual Christian movement. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. There's a man going around taking names and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. A few days ago, I talked about maybe a few weeks ago, two or three or four weeks ago, I talked about an event that took place with Sam Albury and Ravi Zacharias International Ministries where Sam Albury was was brought in to do a presentation on this same-sex attraction idea. And it's it's really just an attempt to import homosexuality into the evangelical churches. Uh, it's working really well. And one of the reasons it's working really well is because most modern evangelical churches... Uh, not only are not preaching the true gospel accurately, uh, they are doing absolutely nothing to equip the saints. They're far more interested in kingdom building. They're far more interested in doing social good. They're far more interested in entertaining and making, making people feel good than they are in actually equipping the body. At any rate, Aubrey comes into this event, and one of the things he said had to do with Jesus himself suffering from uh, body dysphoria, uh, which is related to gender dysphoria. I'm in the wrong body, right? So Ravi Zacharias uh, received a ton of, of, of pushback on this and criticism. And as a result, uh, he's, he's doubling down. He, on a YouTube channel, basically says with Vince Vitale, why, if you are going through this and you're dealing with it personally, because the Christian faith is asking me to trust that there can be this reconciliation, this restoration of two things that seem to be part of me, and I don't see how that can happen. The question is, is there a God who is big enough and loving enough who can do that? Did he reveal himself in history? And did he reveal himself in history in a way that shows us that he understands exactly what we're going through? Because he took on a body that didn't feel right. Listen to that. But he was also but he was able to go through to go through that and rise with a redeemed body because he knows exactly what it is you're going through. That's why, if that's true, you can trust him with your gender. So um, in commenting about this, I know that a lot of, a lot of guys, uh, they kind of shave off the edges. They kind of dull the blade. They kind of don't want the truth of scripture to be quite so cutting. Um, and then some guys will only do that if they're dealing with a particular personality um, because they uh, uh, know uh, that if they come across too direct, too honest, that they're going to offend the sensibilities of modern culture. 
and this is really a huge contributor to the success of these movements, the desire to avoid offending modern sensibilities. This is both in the church and outside the church because we do not have men any longer who are in leadership positions who could care less about the world's opinion of them for preaching the truth. Right? We care about the world's opinion of us from a personal standpoint in that um, the world doesn't perceive me to be a thief. It doesn't perceive me to be a crook, a robber, someone who wants to take advantage of them, who's living a double life, and so on and so forth. But what we do not care about, we do not care if the world hates us because we are proclaiming Christ to them. We do not care if the world hates us because we're telling them something they hate, but that something actually has its source rooted in Christ. And so the problem that we see uh, as we're getting ready to jump into this audit is, and the reason that these movements are so successful, is that the modern churches, number one, they're not given the accurate gospel. They are not equipped by their pastors. Uh, They're not discipled. They're not equipped. They're not trained to think biblically to embrace the teachings of Scripture. They're not given actually even the content of Scripture for the most part. Uh, the, the flyover sermons, the flyover teachings are so high, and, and the issues that are dealt with are dealt with at such a fast-paced, high level that we rarely stop to actually truly equip people to understand the issues, interact with those issues, think rightly about those issues, And then how to articulate those things in a very dark, wicked culture. We just don't do it because we don't want to offend their sensibilities. That's the problem. That's a big, big, huge, huge part of the problem. We have modern American Christians who are embracing Hollywood philosophies left and right. Liberal, modern, progressive policies and values from the culture. And they are infecting the churches. And we are doing very, very little to uh, stop the, the, the flood, the influx of these teachings. And so we have an excellent book out by Donald Forston and Rollins Graham, or Rollin Grahams, who say uh, the title of the book is Unchanging Witness. And they make the following observation. It says, the church in the West has for several decades been listening to a voice asking if what we have long thought about sexual ethics is really true, and suggesting it is time for us to grow up, to be liberated from oppressive commands, to exercise our own authority, and to walk the last mile in a glorious march of freedom that has included such milestones as liberation of slaves, women, and ethnic minorities. Is it not time, we are asked, cast off the shackles of past sexual mores and embrace a new sexuality that accepts, among other things, same-sex relations, even marriage. Now, notice how Forston and Grahams connect the liberation of slaves, women, ethnic minorities. So you've got the racial reconciliation movement and uh, the hashtag MeToo movement connected to the same-sex attraction movement, which is fascinating. I see the connection myself, and I think anybody who's watching what's going on with social justice advocates also recognize that these two things are joined 
at the hip. They are uh, horses of the same uh, stripe, same color. All right, let's get to the audit. This audit that we that I've talked about or alluded to earlier, the gay audit uh, for Christian churches, is an audit that has uh, ten ten questions that it uh, asks, or ten areas that it however you want to phrase this, however you want to look at it, 10 sections basically for you to walk through. And the whole point is you want to evaluate the church and see just exactly how homosexual friendly you are as a church. And for those Christians who don't read their Bible, who do not have a solid grasp on the true gospel, most of them are false converts uh, and they are the majority in American evangelical churches, in the Southern Baptist Church, in the PCA, um, they are—they uh, represent the majority. When when people see Christianity, these are the people they see. This is what they see, and that's regrettable and unfortunate. But it is—it uh, is the case. So the very first question, so what I'm going to do is just walk through this and, and give some comments how, how Christians should really think about, first of all, the audit itself. Um, no Christian worth their salt is going to put together a gay audit for the Christian church because homosexuality and Christianity are antithetical the one to the other. Yeah, and, and 10 years ago, um, no one would have said, whoa, that's a heavy-duty thing to say. But today they will. Ten years ago, they, they would not have. Well, has the Bible changed? Has Christianity changed? Have the truths of Christianity changed? No. Has our confession changed? No. None of that has changed. The only thing that has changed is that we have allowed certain personalities to rise up in our churches to adopt certain views and push them without shutting those people down, deposing them, removing them from our ranks, because we just don't have the guts to do that. We haven't had for a very long time, right? So the cancer that's in the body, the disease that's in the body is allowed to continue and go unchecked. Some of it has uh, something to do with that, what we hear the 11th commandment in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest evangelical denomination in the country. And that organization, that body, uh, that community, whatever you want to refer to it as, is of all the other denominations around evangelicalism. I'm not talking about liberal Protestantism. I'm talking about the true church. Um, the, that community, the Southern Baptist Convention, is more responsible and culpable for the the nonsense that's going on right now in the churches than any other single entity. And if you're a Southern Baptist pastor, then you need to understand you do not have a choice but to step onto this battlefield and to unsheathe your sword and to do the work God called you to do. You cannot bury your head in the sand and just let things roll along their merry way. You're not called to stand on the sideline you're in the game. One way or the other, you're in the game. You are either helping this cause or you're doing everything you can to shut it down. 
but there is no neutrality. There is no I'm doing nothing. There is no I'm going to ignore this. If you, if you are ignoring it, you are fighting on the side of the enemy of truth. All right. The first question in the gay church audit, and this is something for you to check yes or no, true or false, right? True, false, not sure. Your church family meetings include people who could be labeled LGBTQI+, or same-sex attracted. True or false? Okay, so first of all, the as a Christian looks at this and says, okay, first, what is the church family? Because this is about church family meetings. The church family is comprised of covenant members of the church, covenant members of the body of Christ. That's the first thing. All right, so Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons. The Greek word ekklesia, it means a people with shared belief, community for common identity. Okay, so the question then is, are homosexuals part of the church family? And the answer, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, referring to homosexuals as one of the kinds of one of the kind of people that was there in the Corinthian body, Paul said, such were some of you, no longer, no longer. So homosexuals are not part of the body of Christ. They are not covenant members of the Christian community, right? Ezekiel said, the Lord said, through Ezekiel, I'll rip out your heart of stone and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh, right? Jeremiah 31, for those people who are covenant members in the new covenant, the scripture says, I will write my law on your heart. I will put my fear in you. I will put the fear of me in you so that you will never forsake me. Homosexuals, who are receiving same-sex attraction, who are practicing homosexuals, and it's any of these things. It's not, if you are allowing yourself, if you're rolling with same-sex attraction, let's just say that, if you're rolling with same-sex attraction as if it's not a sin, you are a homosexual. That attraction in and of itself is disordered, evil, wicked, against nature, against the law of God. It was not part of the original creation. It's part of the fall. It is to be mortified. Unless your attitude toward same-sex attraction is, it is a sin against God to be mortified, and I will not allow myself to go down that path. I will fight this and mortify this and put this to death through the power of the Holy Spirit and trust God to enable me to continue to put it to death. And my attitude toward same-sex attraction will be one of hate and hostility. Unless that's your attitude, then you don't know Christ. If your attitude is, this is okay, this is normal, this is even a gift from God to help me minister to homosexuals, if that is your attitude then it's very likely that you are outside the community of faith. The church is filled with false converts. Why should this shock any of us? We have people in the church who claim to love Jesus who are nice people, who we think are some of the nicest people around. 
but they're cheating on their wife every other weekend. They're cheating on their husband every other weekend. They're partying, they're, they're fornicating, they're engaged in all kinds of thinking that is contrary and antithetical to Christianity. Just because they're nice people doesn't make them Christian. So why should they be included in the church family? This is clearly contrary to Scripture and to the tradition of Christian churches. Second, second question. Derogatory language or stereotyping towards anyone would not be tolerated either up front or in conversation between church family members. Now, okay, uh, yeah, Christians ought not to use uh, vulgarity to refer to anybody from any background, no matter what. That's, that's absolutely the case. But the question here with this audit, the gay audit, what is the gay audit trying to do? What is the end game? And that's where I go. That's where my focus is. And no, I'm not, I'm not going to allow people to say, well, you just have to read it for what it is and, and t- stay with a strict, literal, wooden interpretation of what they're saying. No, 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 no. We don't do that with Scripture. We look at the context. We look at the background. We look at the setting. We look at the environment, and we ask, What's the writer doing? What is he doing with the words that he's using here? We don't just look at the words and say, that's what he said. In order to properly interpret Scripture, you have to look at a number of different aspects of what's going on in the event of the writing itself. And that's what I'm doing. So I look at the gay audit coming from the website Living Out, understanding some of the other things that Living Out is talking about, and it is through that grid that I interpret what the gay audit is trying to do. And that's how you should look at it as well. So it is incredibly important to homosexuals that they be accepted as homosexuals, that they be affirmed, and that they even be celebrated. Okay, so you can't say anything negative about homosexuals. So, for instance, I come from old school. I'm a country. I'm a country. I'm a country boy. I'm a man. These guys running around, these effeminate men running around, acting like girls. When, when you say he's a girly man, it's an insult. He's a man acting like a girl. Act like a man. Be a man. Stop acting like a girl. You're not a girl. Okay, so that is the kind of language that that this gay audit doesn't want to exist in the churches. And it's not just the language. It's the thinking. Because when a typical guy looks at a man acting like a woman he forms very negative uh, opinions about that behavior and thinks it's a joke because the man is not acting naturally. He's not acting as he's designed to act. He's going against those male traits that he should be exhibiting. And, And it was God from the very beginning, who created these differences. There are differences between men and women. Boys should be raised to act like men. Girls should be raised to act like women. All right? 
So the psychological effect here is to try to get men to accept girly men as as being no different from themselves, really, as acting normally according to what's normal for them. And that's a problem. That's a serious problem. Um, no, it's, <laughs> it is a very serious problem. And unfortunately, a lot of men are actually buying into this. A lot of men are actually okay with this. Their wives are shoving this stuff down their throats. The people around them where they work shoving this stuff down their throats. And so they're backing off of this. And, but inside, inside, most of them, most of, most men still find this, the idea of effeminate behavior extremely annoying. So as, as, as has become obvious to all, homosexuals despise the slightest suggestion that their sexual desires and their behaviors are immoral or unnatural in any way. They don't want that. This audit question is designed not to be loving, but to change attitudes on the part of Christians toward homosexual behavior to include men who act like girls and women who act like men. The third question in the audit, all in your church know that we are all, that we all experience sexual brokenness and all are being encouraged to confess their own sins. So this sort of question is designed to incorporate the victim mentality in demand sexual rebellion. Now, I've heard a lot of good people use this expression, sexual brokenness. I don't use it because it's not, it's not as accurate as it needs to be. And what it does psychologically for people uh, is not a good thing. You should feel the sting of your sin. When you say I'm sexually broken, this is you this is you not taking responsibility for your sexual rebellion. Your sexual wickedness. We're all broken sinners. We're dead in our sin. But we are rebels against God. We rebel against God sexually and in numerous other ways. So this is an attempt to kind of take the sting out of this sin. Instead of being adulterers, fornicators, whores, and queers who are in wicked rebellion against God, we're just sexually broken. No, we, we are useless. We are enemies of God, haters of God, hostile to God. And we stand under judgment and condemnation. Our problem is we're trying to make Christianity attractive to people who hate it. You ever try to get someone to eat something they don't like? They're not going to eat it. I don't care what you do with it. What kind of tray you serve it up on. Serve it on a plate, serve it in a bowl, serve it on a paper plate. Doesn't matter. It tastes the same. The only way to get people to like, to eat something, like let's say, for instance, broccoli. 
people don't some some people don't like broccoli. So what what do we do sometimes with it? We put other things on it. We mix other things with it. Right? I have a Doberman. My Doberman doesn't want to eat his his flea, doesn't want to take his flea medicine. I stick it in food and grind it up in food and stick it in cheese and I mix other things with it to make it taste better. To the unregenerate sinner, Christian truth is bitter. You see, bitter. The second thing this audit question is designed to do is equate homosexual desire with heterosexual desire to normalize it. Right? Homosexual sin, homosexual rebellion is no different than uh, heterosexual sin. And from the standpoint that you will, you will come under the wrath of God for, for all sin, that's true. Sin is sin is sin. Sin gets you under the wrath of God. There's no question about that. But to say that it's the same is actually not quite true, right? Because it's also a sin to have sex with a zebra or sheep, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a sin. Uh, but is it the same as committing fornication uh, to a man and a woman going out and committing fornication? They hooked up at a bar or something. Is having sex with an attractive woman the same as going to the barn and picking out one of your sheep? No. Is it the same as having sex with a child? No. There are differences. Just like two people having consensual sex outside of marriage is a sin, rape is a sin, but there are two different degrees of depravity involved in those two sins. The same is true with homosexuality. This question, this audit question, is designed to, to make them the same. And you hear guys like J.D. Greer and others in the Southern Baptist Convention who are preaching sermons and talking about homosexuality in a way that it is clear they want to make it the same as anything else, and it isn't. And that's part of the thing that really grates on the homosexual, that, that we want to make it the same. They want to make it the same, and it's not. They despise the fact that we believe that it is unnatural for them to do the things they do. And it is. Think about that. The penis is not supposed to be go where there's feces. And, and, and the, the other sexual activities that these guys engage in, I, I can't get into the details of these things because it's disgusting. You see, and that's the other problem is that homosexuals know, heterosexuals find their sexual behavior in the bedroom disgusting, repulsive, sickening. And that drives them nuts. They hate the fact that that's how we look at it. They despise it. And they're doing everything they can to change that. Christian, it's okay for you to think that way. Christian men, it's okay for you to find homosexual sex absolutely repulsive, sickening, disgusting. That's fine. You should find it that way. Two men kissing should absolutely repel you. And what these folks are trying to do is to remove that sting. See, Romans 126 calls these desires degrading, 
even the desire for for a sexual relationship with the same sex, same sex attraction, is a desire that is degrading, dishonorable. It is a desire that is against nature. All right. Next question on the audit says, same-sex relationships are never mentioned in isolation from other sinful patterns of behavior or from the forgiveness offered to all through faith in Christ crucified. Apparently, a healthy church would never devote an entire sermon just to the sin of homosexuality these days. That's a no-no. Okay, so where in Scripture is it not permitted to preach on just one sin? especially in our culture, in our environment, in what's going on today. Pastors ought to be giving attention to this now. There should be single sermons devoted to the sin of homosexuality, just given what Scripture says about it and what's going on in our environment and what's going on in the churches now. Given the current environment, the church has good reason to isolate homosexual sin apart from others and to preach on it. No other group of people have identified themselves by their sin, established themselves as a community around that sin, and insisted that the church change its entire belief system to accommodate that group. It is absurd. Next question. All in your church are hearing the same call to radical self-sacrifice of themselves in response to God's giving of himself in Jesus. Now, this is related to the idea that homosexuals should not be taught to become straight. They should be taught to abstain from acting on their desires, but that their desires themselves are not only okay, but who God made them to be. And there are now some who are claiming that this is actually a gift from God. In other words, the logical implication is that homosexual desire was original to the fall. And that is absurd. Now, no one is saying this yet. But this is the unavoidable logical implication that homosexual desire, same-sex attraction, was original to the fall. If it wasn't, then it's the product of sin. And if it's the product of sin, it cannot be neutral where God's law and creation is designed. It's either evil, or it's good. It was not original to creation, which makes it evil. Next question on the audit says, all in your church are encouraged to develop an identity founded first and foremost on their union with Christ. Now, this audit question takes on the appearance of being orthodox, traditional, and right. My response to this is that Satan appears as an angel of light, not as the chief of demons that he actually is, okay? Satan appears as an angel of light. These men sneak into the churches. They import their heresy into the churches behind the curtain, behind our backs. They're stealth, stealthy about it. Jude 4 and Galatians 2, 4 both talk about false teachers who join our community surreptitiously with evil intent, camouflaged. And this is a camouflaged question, right? You have to sound orthodox and evangelical if you're going to dupe the orthodox and the evangelical. 
You have to sound like them. You have to look like them. You have to walk like them. You have to talk like them. Otherwise, you're never going to make inroads into their community. Hope that makes sense. Next question is, a godly Christian sexual orientation would never prevent them from exercising their spiritual gifts or serving in leadership in your church. A godly Christian's sexual orientation. All of a sudden now, this is no longer desire. This is no longer your desire. This is who you are, your orientation. You were created by God with this particular orientation. Instead, this is a condition that instead of, of it being yours, it being your desire, something you can control, it's a condition that happens to someone at birth, and it is perfectly normal and natural. Now, whether, it, whether people are born with this disposition or not uh, is still a hotly contested and debated. There's no gay gene. They've, they've looked and looked and looked and looked and looked. Can't find one. That's a problem. A, that's a problem for those who want to say that it's, it's biological. So uh, it is a condition that happens to us. right? And so we also know that not only is this a condition that happens to us, that many in this movement now are calling same-sex attraction a gift from God. One of the questions that I've always been curious about is why, why don't heterosexual men and women identify as adulterers or fornicators when they're committing adultery and fornication? Why is it that hom homosexuals insist on being identified by their sexual sin instead of being a human being created in the image of God? If you are a homosexual and you have same-sex attraction, then you, you have a sinful disposition that has to be mortified. The same as a heterosexual man who has a sinful disposition to be attracted to women who he finds attractive. He has to mortify those desires. Has to put them to death. The same as a same-sex attracted person has to put to death the desire or the sexual attraction to someone of the same, excuse me, same sex. This is nothing more than homosexuality being imported into the church, folks. That's all it is. Next question, God's gift of either singleness or marriage are equally promoted, valued, and practically supported in your church's family's life together, church family's life together. Now, here's, here's, the, here's a, another thing that's going on with guys like Russell Moore uh, and uh, Alberry and others. There's this, this, all of a sudden, this focus on singleness and this de devaluing the family, devaluing children, devaluing marriage. You listen to the conversations, and it's coming through loud and clear. Never before in the history of the church have we talked this way. And somehow, we're supposed to believe that we're not talking this way in order to prop up same-sex attraction coming into the church, in order to prop up homosexuality coming into the church. We've just realized that you know we've turned family into idol, and we really shouldn't, and that was never God's intent from the beginning, right? Hmm. 
Look, guys, this is another attempt to normalize homosexual behavior. Marriage is original to creation. Singleness is not. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper. And God created woman. So it is not good for man to be alone is original to creation. The sinful fall that we see in humanity has now put us in a situation where it can be good for man to be alone if he has the gift. God now gifts men to not need marriage. But this is a special gift from God. For the overwhelming majority of us, we are told to marry if sexual desire is there. Single homosexuals is a concept foreign to Scripture. It is a concept foreign to Scripture. The sexual urge is either present at a level that is, let's say, a typical in it's in the it's in its typical range. There's no gift. You should marry it in order to avoid immorality, as Paul says in First Corinthians chapter seven. But there are some people who are born with the ability, who do not have that sexual urge, maybe even at all, or it's not in the typical range. It's very low. For those people, if they can receive it, singleness is a good thing for the purpose of being completely devoted to the ministry and serving the Lord in the body. That's the reason, right? Matthew 19, 11, 12, and 1 Corinthians 7, 7 clearly teach that singleness is, in fact, a gift from God that not everyone has. Next question. Church family members instinctively share meals, homes, holidays, festivals, money, family life with others from different backgrounds and life situations to them. Now, this is an attempt to push for the acceptance that there is such a thing as a homosexual community, just like there are races, genders, etc. Christians, look, Christians must continue to view homosexuality as they view any other sin in the sense that it is a rebellious activity against God's law to be repented of. Not as if it's a, uh, a lifestyle or who you are, something that you should identify as being, and then we should embrace. It is, it is at bottom, a disordered desire against nature unhealthy behavior, both physically and psychologically. It's unhealthy for homosexuals to even have same-sex attraction psychologically because we know instinctively it's wrong. We don't just know this from Scripture. We know this naturally speaking. We know this instinctively. It's why, it's why people have such a problem with it. It's why even people who are same-sex attracted are so conflicted. Because they know instinctively 
that that desire is unnatural, not normal, disordered, and immoral. And that they can't get out of their system. It's there eating at them the whole time. So we know biblically from Scripture and we know from nature that this is a desire that needs to be mortified and put to death. The church isn't helping anyone if they're helping them accept same-sex attraction about themselves and that it is something not to be repented of, that it is natural and even healthy and now even a gift, which is amazing. Next question, no one would be pressured into expecting or seeking any healing or change that God has not promised any of us until the renewal of all things. Now, this is the most egregious of errors. This is easily, this is easily the most damning question of the entire audit. No repentance here, folks. It is overtly rejecting the very idea of repentance and of the very concept of being regenerated are born again. Yet in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Paul says, such were some of you. This is outrageous. This question is deadly and it is damning. Now, about this, this entire strategy, it's working, folks. It's working. The evangelical churches are caving in to same-sex attraction for all the reasons I mentioned earlier. Modern evangelicals have a deficient understanding of God, His holiness, and His sovereignty because they haven't been taught it and they don't care to pick up their Bibles. Modern evangelicals have a deficient understanding of sin, sinfulness, and depravity. They don't understand the sinfulness of sin. They don't get exactly how evil depravity really is and what God's disposition is toward rebellion, these misunderstandings lead to a defective understanding of grace. You have modern evangelical Christians who don't even understand grace. They don't understand God. They don't understand sin. They don't understand Christ. They don't understand grace. Modern evangelicals embrace a version of God, man, sin, grace, and the gospel that are nothing like that which is revealed in ancient Christianity in the scriptures for the most part. You become a Christian the same way you become a Muslim in modern evangelical Christianity. It's a very natural process. It's like embracing a new philosophy. Another reason this is working is because so many evangelical Christians live lives that are not defined by holiness. They're looking at porn. They're lusting. They're engaged in filthy talk. They're lying. They're stealing. They're committing adultery against their spouses. They're fornicating if they're single. This is just their lifestyle. Now, please, don't interpret my comments to say that Christians never actually fall into an egregious sin. Galatians 6.1 is clear that this does happen sometimes, and we have to recover one another from these sins. I'm talking about an attitude of and a lifestyle where people are just, this is sin, is, sin is a mistake. How many times do I hear Christians talk about sin as if it is an imperfection or a mistake or even something that happens to me instead of something I do? I have sinned egregiously against God over the course of my life, even as a Christian. And I have needed to be rebuked and corrected and and so on and so forth. And we all do. And I will in the future as well. 
I will need my brothers and sisters to come to me and say, Ed, you're over the top. Or, Ed, that was wrong. We, but for grace, we are capable of all kinds of sinful behavior in our lives. But that, is, that happens, and we, we, we recover one another, and the true fruit of Christian faith is repentance when that happens. Right? Someone, someone uh, uh, is caught up in a lie, and they come out and admit it and confess it and repent. Uh, someone comes to you and says, I've got this problem with porn and I need help. And, and, and they don't soften it. They, don't, they admit this is evil. It's wicked. It's sinful. Help me to deal with this sinfulness in my life, to put it to death, mortify it, and kill it. All right. So the reason this movement is successful is because our pastors are derelict in their duties to equip the body to preach the true God who gives us the true gospel in Christ. There's very little, if any, discipleship going on. That's why the strategy is working. If we're going to change things, we have to change that. All right, let's summarize this. Let's come to the conclusion. The church's policy on same-sex attraction must continue to be informed by sound exegesis of the biblical text, not by the currents of the culture, not by pagan values, not by Hollywood, not by Washington, but by Scripture. Moreover, opposition by the church to those who want to affirm same-sex attraction without demanding repentance should not be construed as a lack of love or concern for these individuals. We really do hate the sin while loving the sinner. In fact, loving the sinner requires us to hate the sin. Only when we hate Only when we hate the sin do we demand repentance. And only when we demand repentance do we love the sinner. This is because repentance and faith in Christ is their only hope. It was our only hope. Okay, I'm going to stop right there and bring this thing to a close. Thank you for listening to The Reformed Ran. If you have any comments, questions, concerns... Uh, ideas, suggestions. If you're listening to the Reformed Rant uh, in the app, uh, you can leave a uh, message right there in the app. Otherwise, you can go over to uh, reformedreasons.com and uh, contact me that way. I'll be happy to respond to any questions, any messages you might have. If you have any ideas or suggestions for the program, we certainly do and would appreciate it. Thank you for listening. God bless Keep the faith, stay in the fight, continue to glorify God and honor the name of Christ in this earth and be the light God has called you to be. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com In the heat of the early morning On a hill